but I'm glad that you're here, and I'm so excited about this morning's message. Uh, I'm so excited for this passage we're in because it's, it gives us a lot to talk about. Uh, in 1 Kings 21, we have this perhaps familiar story of Naboth's vineyard and his vineyard being stolen from him. You know, and it gives us this platform, I would say, this particular chapter get, does, gives us this ability to talk about uh, that word that's been on a lot of people's minds and at the front of their lips over the last several months is that word justice. <clears throat> that word is often talked about, right? And it's a lot of different conversations, news outlets, news articles, blah, blah, blah. They always talk about justice and what it means and all, and all that kind of stuff. And, and all these different experts and analysts have been uh, navigating ways on how to get the idea of justice into reality. What, is, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, just don't think about it in such a big sense. Think about it for yourself. When you feel slighted, when you feel like you have been wronged, what's your immediate reaction? <laughs> Retaliation. <laughs> I need to get that person back. When the person cuts me off in traffic, you best believe I'm going to try and get in front of them and cut them off because that's justice, right? <laughs> That's, that's what they deserve. That's what they get. <laughs> or if they are driving really slow on a two-lane road, you best believe we're going to go around them. Uh, that's just justice. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, oftentimes our approach to that word is often that. It's retaliation. It's trying to get someone back so that they get their due, that they get, their, uh, they get justice on their heads, so to speak. And uh, all of this is to say is that uh, in the absence of, of justice being achieved uh, in our way and in our timing and to our liking, we are often very prone to taking matters into our own hands. We sort of seize the gavel and we become not just the victim, but the one who can lay down the verdict too. <laughs> we say we've been wrong, but we're also the one who judges at the same time, laying down the law. And what often results is, is havoc instead of harmony. And there's one industry that has made quite a, uh, quite a, uh, quite, they have capitalized quite heavily off of this particular sort of paradigm, and it's of course the film industry. Just think about how many movies involve a good guy being slighted, getting back at the bad guy by taking the bad guy's life. <laughs> and at the end, what are you given to do? You give a fist pump. Yeah, the bad guy got it. <laughs> he got his comeuppance. He got what was coming to him. That sounds like justice, when really it's just a more acceptable form of revenge, is it not? <laughs> it's just retaliation in a slightly different light that appears and it feels right. It feels like what should happen. You see, in this life, the life that we live here and now, there is no such thing as an impartial judge. Everyone has their biases, everyone has their bents, and because of that, there is always uh, something going to be lacking in the justice we hand down. And I think that that is what comes to the surface in this chapter, chapter 21. It's chock full of injustice, especially in the first 16 verses. We, we see here is these royal family, these two really high-powering political figures, Ahab and Jezebel, conspiring and using their positions of power to swindle a regular guy out of what's rightfully his. If that's not the definition of injustice, I don't know what is. 
And examining this account, if you just read through it, as Pastor Nathan did brought us through the first 14 verses, you likely got a little bit irritated. Perhaps you even got a little bit angry. You bristled at the idea of what this account is telling us. This cruelty of position and this corruption of power and all of this self-interest and self-conceit that's on display. Most notably by these two, the dynamic duo themselves, Ahab and Jezebel. But actually what I hope that this chapter does is I hope that it makes you pray and pine For one who would be able to come and truly make things right. We need a true and a better judge. Notice as we go through this particular chapter. That the historian picks up right where he left off. With Ahab going back to his home. Heavy and displeased to use his words at the end of chapter 20. uh, After hearing those very uh, ominous words from that anonymous prophet. Chapter 20, verse 42. Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go of thy hand a man who I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. A condemnation is laid down by this nameless prophet. And it says in verse 43, And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased. He's going home very sad, very sullen. He needs... A (laughs) pick-me-up. And perhaps that's the reason why, as he is on his way home, he figures, I want that vineyard. Because it says in verse 1, And it came to pass after these things, that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by, very close to, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So perhaps on his way home, And he's very sad. He's throwing himself a pity party. And he sees this vineyard. He thinks to himself, that should be mine. I need that vineyard. He sees how lush it is. He sees how grown it is. And he knows that this thing must be his. And perhaps he thought that uh, tending to this vineyard or perhaps having servants tend to it for him and get the wine out of it, he could make himself a little bit happier, alleviate some of the dismay that is now on his soul and his mind and his heart because of this prophecy that has just been laid down. You will be utterly destroyed. So he goes and he knocks on Naboth's door. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, verse 2, saying, Give me... The presumption. Give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. Now you know, whenever a deal is going down and the person says, I have something better to give you in exchange for what you have. You know they're probably lying. Because why wouldn't they just take the better thing that they have? And here Ahab is doing the same exact thing. (laughs) I have something better that I want in exchange for what you have. He says, I will buy it from you. If you don't want to trade, if you don't want to make a trade straight up, I will buy it for it. Exchange you and give you the money that you would need, uh, that that your vineyard is worth. But of course, Naboth doesn't budge at all. Verse 3. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give thee the inheritance of my father's. Not for sale. 
Despite whatever uh, sort of offer the king could give, the offer that could not be refused is here refused by Naboth. He says, no, I'm not selling. This is not something that I'm willing to part with. And this naturally, naturally sends Ahab into a spiral. Look at what he does. I love, I love to see the immaturity on display in King Ahab. And Ahab came into his house, verse 4, heavy and displeased. Notice, the same two words to describe his mental and emotional state after that prophecy, it describes this, this business deal gone bad. He's heavy and displeased yet even more. Because, as it says there, the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. He throws a royal temper tantrum. (laughs) I can't have what I want, so I'm going to go to my room and cry. And I'm not going to eat, I'm going to pout. That's that's my plan. (laughs) It's really fascinating to me to see that this is Ahab's solution to this predicament. He's like your typical two-year-old. Thinking that everything in the world revolves around him. And when he can't get his way, if he just whines enough, if he throws enough, makes enough of a scene, maybe someone will give him what he wants. You see, I think the last thing that he was expecting when he knocked on Naboth's door is for him to refuse him, him, the king. How dare you refuse what I'm requesting? But what's interesting is that Naboth gives him an argument that Ahab really can't argue with. He does two really important things, Naboth does, in verse 3. Again, again, go to it. Notice what he says. The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. You see what he's doing here this, by this phrase, the inheritance of my fathers. He's invoking the law of Moses. The, the law which was supposed to sort of ordain and run the land in which King Ahab was reigning over. And in that law, there's lots of details regarding very strict restrictions when it comes to real estate sales and transactions. And here, he's appealing to that law. The law says, I am not allowed to do that. I can't make intertribe sales, which is essentially what would be happening. So he's not just a senile old man. He's appealing to the law. He has a legal right and a familial right to maintain this vineyard. But also what I think is even more important is what Naboth says at the beginning. He says, the Lord forbid it me. He's appealing to Yahweh. He appeals to Yahweh's law. And yes, here he appeals to Yahweh's authority. And he says, there's a higher king. There's a higher power that I answer to, King Ahab. And that person is not you. Imagine having that said into King Ahab's face. You're not the king I answer to. I answer to someone higher. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the king of all things. He's the one that I have to answer to. And remember, just think about Ahab's reaction, especially after the first several years of his reign as the king of Israel. He spent the bulk of his time, along with his co-partner in crime, Jezebel, dismantling and replacing the religion of Yahweh with Baal and the gods of Asherah and all other kinds of false idols. (laughs) And here, this 
simple, unassuming vineyard owner is confronting the king to his face. No, I don't answer to you. I answer to the law. And I answer to Yahweh, the God of the law. This is, I think, again, why Ahab goes home heavy and displeased. He can't argue with that. (laughs) He can't have a, a way around what Naboth has just declared. So he goes home and pouts. He sits on his bed and he sulks and he cries and he's, he's whining because he can't get his way. And that's when his wife Jezebel comes in. Verse 5. But Jezebel's wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? She comes in trying to console him, trying to perhaps understand this new mood that she finds her king in. And he said unto her, Because... I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered and said, I will not give thee my vineyard. (laughs) So he recounts what Naboth said, except leaving out the part about appealing to Yahweh. He conveniently leaves that part out. But I think these words stun his queen Jezebel, and her reaction, I think, says it all. Notice what she says. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? You have to read it with the right tone. It's a very judgmental tone that Jezebel is here giving this question in. Because it's, it's, a, it's a question, but it's also a very cutting remark. Are you really the king? You're going to let this vineyard owner talk to you that way? Are you, are you really the guy who is holding the scepter and sitting on the throne of Israel? Or are you not? Are you some chump? Because that's what you sound like right now. That's essentially what Jezebel is saying to her king. You sound really weak. Who dares refuse the royal family? And so with her king pouting, Jezebel says, okay, fine. I will, I will do it. I will give you what you want. Notice what she says. Arise and eat. Go ahead and start partying. Go ahead and start making yourself merry. And let thine heart be merry, because I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreel. I will do it of my own accord. She is now taking matters into her own hands. She's doing it of her own volition. And listen to this conspiracy. Verse number 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. And sealed them with his seal and sent the letters into elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. So, important thing to remember. Naboth's own neighbors and friends were involved in this conspiracy. And she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And set two men, sons of Belial, or sons of nothingness, or uh, good for nothings, you could translate that as, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Pretty, pretty menacing stuff. <laughs> She's taking official Israelite letterhead, adding the king's official signature, and putting on also the royal seal. This is all so, it appears, very official. This is coming from on high. This is coming from the king. This is something that is happening that has his stamp of approval. A fast was to be held in this region, and we're going to honor Naboth at this fast. He's going to be held high among the people. 
And in the middle of it, I want you to have these two good-for-nothing guys stand up and attest to his crimes. He's blasphemed God and he's blasphemed the king, at which point you can take him out and stone him to death. This is a very, very malevolent scheme that she has just concocted. This plot to sort of sweep Naboth under the rug, all so that her king could get a vineyard. That's what strikes me so fascinating about this chapter. It's all about a vineyard. Something not seemingly of great consequence in the matters of eternity, but for them, at least right now, it's something that is right there in front of them that they need. It's the carrot dangling in front of them they have to have. But I think what makes this little scheme that Jezebel puts together so much shadier and so much slimier is just the fact that it's all done, again, according to the law. She has a charge that's being testified by two witnesses in front of a public quorum. She's not just taking him out and throwing him in a ditch. She's actually making it look official. They're in a religious fast where they're honoring this guy, and he is presumed to be a guy who is very irreligious blaspheming God and the king. So therefore, the penalty, at least according to those who have no other knowledge of the situation, it appears very adequate. This, for all intents and purposes, fake crime appears very, uh, appears very truthful and legal, and it goes off without a hitch. That's what is perhaps more frustrating. Look at verse 11. And the men of his city... Even the elders and nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, again, note, Naboth's neighbors, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people, and there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him, and the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. These verses are interesting to me only because they come across very matter of fact, do they not? It's almost like here's what happened and here's the next thing and here's the next fact. It's almost like a detective giving his assessment of a homicide rather than sort of trying to appeal to your emotions. He's just saying, here's this, this is what happened, and here's the next sequence of events, and now he's dead. It's very sort of flat. There's very sort of no emotion involved. And yet now with Naboth out of the way, he's been successfully disposed of. Ahab can go and enjoy his new vineyard. Verse 15 And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. They've pulled off the perfect crime. The guy who owns this vineyard, he's now out of the way. And in fact, if you read 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, they actually have also wiped out his whole family too. His sons and Naboth, all of them, they're all gone. 
They've all been disposed of. This vineyard is now ripe for the taking. And now Ahab walks in and he is enjoying it. And I have to, I have to pause and wonder, did it meet his expectations? <laughs> He's put in so much emotion into this. Jezebel has put in so much effort into getting this thing, this sort of uh, sort, this, this, this gift, this idea in front of them that we have to have this vineyard. And now when he walks into it and it's his, did it meet what his expectations? Did it fulfill him like he thought it would? <laughs> I have to imagine, no, it did not. Because usually that's what happens when you put all of your eggs into one basket. And then when you finally get it, you're like, oh, this is, this is it? And here they've, they've got it at the expense of a person's life. And that's exactly when God shows up. So they are thinking that they've pulled this off. They've, they've pulled off the most perfect crime imaginable. And then Yahweh shows up to sort of disturb their peace. Look at verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. So go get him. He, he's now Elijah's being informed by God, by God himself, of what has just happened. This very dastardly crime has just been committed. Go down and confront Ahab because he's stolen. He's taken possession of this vineyard out of Naboth's family's hands. And that's when Elijah goes down and he proceeds to paint a very gruesome picture of what awaits Ahab and Jezebel. Notice. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, verse 19, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered and said, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam and the son, the son of Naboth and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord saying, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city of the dogs, in the city the dogs shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Hmm. Striking words and a striking prophecy coming from Elijah. It kind of fits his character, does it not? This very uh, outspoken and very sort of eager prophet to declare this word. Ahab's fate would be a very foul one. The images of dogs lapping up his blood and fowls eating his son's carcasses doesn't strike us as something very pleasant. But yet at the same time, does it not appear inherently earned? Do you get a little bit of, yeah, when you hear those graphic words? (laughs) Ahab is getting it. (laughs) He's getting his due. He's he's getting his justice. (laughs) 
After all those years of spurning God and not going God's way, not listening to the prophets, resisting every single urging that Yahweh has brought into his life to remind him of his own authority and of Ahab's own weakness, this appears entirely just. It speaks to us. It might give a little fist bump. (laughs) Reading these words, the bad guy is getting his due. Of course, we know you cannot provoke the Lord that long and expect it not to get the better of you. And Ahab was going to learn this the hard way. And the verdict is very final. The nail in the coffin, so to speak, comes in verse 25, where Elijah says this, But there was none like unto Ahab, or excuse me, the historian is saying this, There was none like unto Ahab. Which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. He's a bad guy. That's essentially how you can summarize those verses. He's a bad dude who's done evil thing and these things and he's basically sold his soul to the devil to continue doing evil things so that he appears good and mighty and powerful. So what he would get seems entirely what is his due. And it appears now, if we were to stop at verse 26, it would appear very likely that everything is working out. Justice has been served. Naboth, yes, he's been cruelly murdered, but he's actually vindicated in the end because, of course, his innocent death is giving the opportunity for everyone to see the type of just God that we have. He's a God of justice. And it's bearing itself out, uh, appearing uh, as it, uh, it appears to be, so to speak, in this particular passage. He's going to give Ahab and Jezebel their proper judgments. And it's showing us that no one, notwithstanding their position in society or politics, is outside of the jurisdiction of God's authority. It's showing us that very clearly. He can put a hand of judgment on whoever he wants. And yet, that's where we get to verse 27. Because this sort of thirst and our joy and perhaps we're applauding God for the justice that he's just served through his prophet Elijah is now put on hold. Verse 27. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Fascinating, isn't it? The guy who did all of this really evil, wicked stuff doesn't get his comeuppance. Where's the justice in that? He's actually allowed to live, in effect, if you do the math, I think it's roughly 12 or 20 years longer after this very point. So Naboth gets to rot in a ditch, but Ahab gets to keep living? How is that just? How is, how is God working all things together for good in this situation? 
Well, a couple of things. Note, uh, I think it's interesting to note here that God's words here don't uh, constitute a sort of erasing of judgment, just its delay. Obviously, his sons, if you read 2 Kings 9 and 10, those chapters, you can really see the descendants of Ahab really do feel the judgment of God. And of course, we know if you read just the next chapter, this sort of repentance doesn't have the staying power that we hope that it might. I think also interesting enough that this scene is really reminiscent of the scene in 2 Samuel 12 with David and Nathan. Remember, David, uh, if we sometimes forget this, as dastardly as this scheme is, we also sometimes have to keep in mind that the scheme that David pulled off was probably a little bit worse. Remember, he has committed his sin with Bathsheba. He has taken her for himself. And then, because she gets pregnant, he has to wiggle away out of it. And his thought, his great idea, is to have Uriah killed. So he puts him on the front line of battle, ensuring that he will surely die in the next conflict. And he does. You talk about wicked. David, the man after God's own heart, has a very wicked and venomous past. And yet, when he's confronted by Nathan, what happens? Nathan declares those words, thou art the man. And David falls to the ground and he falls and repents. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 12. You can read about it in Psalm 51. It's sort of the, the similar sort of uh, passages. He repents wholeheartedly. He repents of his own volition, so to speak. And he realizes the guiltiness of his ways. And he falls prostrate, such as what Ahab does here. I only say that to say we shouldn't be so hard immediately on Ahab in this passage. Anyone can repent. Anyone can uh, to come before the Lord and falls prostrate before him, especially since God himself looks so favorably on this repentance. But maybe you're still on the fence. Maybe you're unconvinced or perhaps you're dissatisfied with the justice or injustice on display in this passage. Actually, I think what this whole story is about, the whole thing, It's about showing us who really does hold justice in his hands, meaning Yahweh alone. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 30 that God is a God of justice. And later on in Isaiah's prophecy, he says that I, the Lord, love justice. Although it wouldn't appear so here. Yet we read elsewhere in the scriptures, you can read all sorts of different passages that, uh, that talk about how God has assured us, his sword, his children, that evil will one day get its comeuppance. That all of the things that sin and darkness and death has done will one day be put into eternal death. That all of the, the evil and the wicked, those ones will be properly judged. Nahum, that prophet that's most least likely visited perhaps, Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says this. God, excuse me, God is a jealous God. And the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. We perhaps like that passage. Yeah, God, get him. But I think it's to show us one thing. 
That he alone, Yahweh alone is heaven's judge, not us. He is the only one who can rightly and appropriately discern perfectly in every matter. And he's the only one whose it is his prerogative to lay down judgment or mercy. And I think that's the hallmark of this text. The, the lasting, the staying power of 1 Kings 21 is not Ahab's repentance, whether it's genuine or not. It's the fact that God is bent. His leaning is towards mercy and not judgment. That's his bent. If you don't believe me, listen to some of these verses. You can write them down. I wrote them down so I could just read them. Exodus chapter 34, 6. If, let me just, I'll back up. This is the undercurrent of the Bible. The undercurrent of the Bible is not a vindictive God who wants to get everyone for what they've done wrong. It's a God who leans towards goodness and mercy. Listen to how many times this same thing is repeated throughout the Bible. Exodus 34, 6. On Mount Sinai, Jehovah says to Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He says the same thing later on in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He says later on in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17, Thou art a God, listen, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. The Psalms declare this too. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. And on it goes. The theme of the Bible is this type of God. He's patient with good-for-nothing lowlifes. He's patient with sinners. And he's long-suffering enough to allow them to fall into his mercy. Whereas you and I are quick to judge, quick to pull the, fi- the trigger on judgment and wanting to get the bad guys, get their due. God is not. He's a God entirely unlike us, whose heart isn't bent on retribution, it's bent on redemption. His heart is, as it says in 2 Peter, that he doesn't want anyone to perish. Yeah, even the likes of those like Ahab. Even guys with that type of resume. He doesn't want them to perish. (laughs) So that's God's justice. It's the justice that he has promised to us. It's the promise that he says, I am the only one who can carry that gavel. I, the Lord, have reserved the right for judgment and vengeance and recompense, as he says in Deuteronomy 32. He is the judge and we are not. But you might be thinking this. Okay, that's, that's good for out there. Like the way later we know that God one day is going to come and judge all the bad guys. All the sinners, all the wicked. They are going to be judged rightly and appropriately in, in God's holiness for their wrongdoings. We know that perhaps, perhaps you, you long for that day. And we should rightly long for the day when all the wrongs will be made right. But what about the here and now? What does that do for me right now? There's injustice right now. There's being wrongs done to me right now. What, what about that? I can't just wait for the end of all days. I can't just... How is that, how is that fair? How is that just? 
Well, you see, my friends, I think what this passage also shows us is that the justice that we long for, that the justice that we seek, has already been paid for and finished. It's already been done. It's already been affected. And it's been paid for by no one other than the battered and the bruised and the bloodied body of, I would say this, the true and the better Naboth, Jesus Christ. He's the true and better Naboth who has paid and settled all of the injustice that we feel by himself succumbing to the injustice of the cross. Think about it. Naboth was brought before a makeshift jury in a a place that was supposedly a religious house. And all of these uh, under-the-table deals and backdoor deals ensured his guilty sentence. Sounds like Christ. Who was brought before a crackpot jury and endured a fake trial. Just like Naboth. Where a false accusation of blasphemy was rendered by the authority of authority of two witnesses. Just like Jesus. Who endured the false accusation of blasphemy. Even though he was God in the flesh standing in their midst. And then get this. Jesus too was betrayed by those who were closest to him. Just like the neighbors in Naboth's circumstances were involved in the plot that led to his demise. Know again who scatters when Jesus' hour had come. His 12 closest comrades. They all scattered and fled. They left Jesus in his hour of gravest need. You see, this is The good news of this chapter. It's the good news of the true and better Naboth. Jesus Christ. Whose blood actually when it falls to the ground. It doesn't call out for more judgment. You know what his blood falls to the ground and calls for? It calls for acquittal. It calls for redemption. That's what Hebrews 12.24 says. There, he's referencing it in terms of the blood of Abel. Remember, in the blood of Abel, it says, cries from the ground for his brother's judgment. And yet, it says, well, I'll just read it. I won't try and pretend I can memorize it. Hebrews 12. It's an awesome little verse where the writer of Hebrews shows how much better Jesus is. And yes, I am promising myself to preach through Hebrews because I keep referencing it and I think it's awesome. <laughs> Jesus, it says, the mediator of the new covenant into the blood of sprinkling, get this, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood fell to the ground and called for his brother's judgment. So does Naboth's. It falls to the ground and calls for Ahab's judgment. When Jesus' blood falls to the ground, what does it call for? Acquittal, redemption, salvation. What a true and better hope we have in the justice that was served on our true and better Naboth, Jesus himself. See, the promise for justice was once for all given to us in the face of Jesus Christ, who is crucified for things unjustly. 
crucified for those acts of wickedness and dastardly deeds of, 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 of sin and wickedness and rebellion that he did not commit. He was judged unjustly so that you and I could be, can be received by grace into the Father's arms. He endured the brunt of that. The brunt of God's justice. He got our comeuppance. He got our wrath. He settles it all on the ground of Golgotha, the ground that should have been reserved for judgment. This is what our Savior did. I'm reminded of those words. We sung them last week. His, <coughs> his robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, "'Tis done." Sin's wages paid, propitiation won, my friends, this morning. The wrongs that you feel need to be righted, they are right in Jesus Christ. The ways that you have been slighted and dealt with unfairly are made right and whole in Jesus Christ. And yes, one day all things will be made new as he says to us that that's what his mission is. And my friends, he established it on the cross. This morning, look in hope and faith to your true and better Naboth. Who has settled justice once for all. Let us pray.